competitive 40K network presents Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. And now your host, Tim Penny and the Art of War coaches. Hello and welcome to the Art of War podcast. I'm your returning host, Tim Penny. This is episode uh, 97. I'm rejoined by uh, the Art of War uh, founder and head coach, Nick Brown Magic Nanavati. How are you, Nick? I'm doing great. 97 episodes. I can't believe I've been doing this for so It's long. absolutely crazy. And we're also joined by a special guest. Uh, he did very well at Atlantic City. Um, his name is Sasha Alexander Edelkraut. Sasha, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing pretty well today. Thank you. And thank you for having me, Nick and Tim. It's a pleasure. Yeah, pleasure having you, Sasha. So, Sasha, by the way, love the name. Do you uh, For this, do you want us to call you Sasha? Do you want us to call you Alexander or Alex for uh, for this show? Uh, we'll just go by Alex. Uh, usually when I introduce myself, I go by Alex. And when people get to know me more, they switch over to Sasha. Um, but just for ease, we can just stay with Alex. All right. Sounds good, Alex. Uh, so Alex played a faction you don't hear about very often, but it's kind of been uh, on the slow burn. I would say for probably about the past year, it's been picking up pace and people are starting to uh, take notice. He actually played... Black Templars, a name you might not have heard of for a while. I know I used to love playing them in 3rd edition. I'm very excited to see them come back. Uh, Alex, why don't you go ahead and tell us about your list and break it down for us. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I actually started around the same time, 3rd edition. It was my first 40k army 16 years ago. Um, and some of the models I actually had painted and used um, were from back then. Uh, so it was a good feeling to have them back on the tabletop. Uh, yeah, so about my list. Um, I'm running a single battalion detachment. Uh, my focus is really on the elite slot and on the HQ. Uh, in my HQ, I'm running a chaplain on bike uh, with the Rights of War Warlord trait. The good thing with Black Templar is we do not necessarily need to take the specific um, Master of Sanctity uh, Warlord trait. Instead, uh, we have a relic that lets us roll 2d6, picking one of the results. So you roll 2d6, you only need one 3 or better to succeed uh, to chant your litany. And that frees up that warlord trait. And I prefer Rights of War. It has won me many games to have a last turn chaplain just boosting onto an objective. Or with my second HQ choice, which is my bike captain, they would usually go and tandem turn 4 or 5 and just hop around on objectives being object, uh, objective secured. So my captain on bike just has a thunder hammer, he has the warlord trait, uh, the, um, how's it called again, the chapter specific one, I think it's master of the codex. Basically what it does in my command phase, as long as he's alive, I can roll a single d6 on a 4 or better, I do get an additional CP. So usually this nets out being 2-3 CP. And if I roll lucky, um, I get a couple more out of it. And he's equipped with a thunder hammer and one of my key relics that my list is really built around. It's called the Aurelian Shroud. It's a once per game usage. And what it does is for the entirety of that turn. So basically, and this is the great thing about it, you use it before the turn starts. So you can use it at the beginning of turn one, after you know who's going first, turn two, three, four, five. And what it does is for the entirety of the turn, the captain will get an aura ability that all core or character units within three inches, which can be buffed, and we'll get to that later, um, get a four vulnerable save for the entirety of the turn. is against shooting and close combat. As long as they stay within three inches of my captain, all my units have a four vulnerable save. 
And then last but not least, I have Chaplain Grimaldus. He is a Black Templar-specific chaplain. Um, he is not a master of sanctity, so he does not conflict with the Primaris uh, chaplain on bike, but he can chant two litanies. So I have basically a total of four litanies I can do. Uh, Grimaldos only rolls a single d6 and succeeds on a three-up, so I usually fail his quite often, I must admit. Um, but even if I just get in sometimes, I usually start with him, I see what I can get, and um, based on how I roll on him, I usually then decide what do I do with my Primaris chaplain. The four litanies between both of them that I have um, are Fervent Acclamation. This is a subtle one, but a very powerful one on the tabletop, I have realized. It's called Fervent Acclamation. Basically, what it does is himself, so Grimaldus, will increase all his auras by three inches. And then any other character or core unit within his nine-inch bubble also gets plus three to their range. So basically what it does is you reroll one auras on your captain now is a nine-inch aura. His Aurelian Shroud, which is the four mono, is a six-inch aura. And um, all the buffs from my other chaplain will also be a nine-inch buff. Um, this has turned out to be actually huge. On paper, you will notice it doesn't sound great, but on the tabletop, this has been one of the best buffs um, I've ever gotten. The, his other uh, litany is the Litany of Divine Protection. That's pick a unit in your command phase on a 3 or better. Basically, if it goes off, that unit gets a 5 up funeral pain save. Um, so it's really good because usually your apothecary stays a little bit further back, which we'll get to him in a second. So you can give this on a unit that you know will jump forward, charge the enemy, and they will do so now with a little bit added protection of a 5 up funeral pain. Uh, to finish off Grimaldus, he also comes with two additional little buffs. Uh, he has a deny the uh, witch, basically. So same as a psyker, he can deny one psychic power per turn. And he has a six-inch aura, which he can buff himself to a nine-inch aura, that uh, units within core units, within that range on sixes, do generate additional attacks. I still need to roll, so it's not like whirlwind of rage from the Space Marine Codex. Um, it's still an additional attack, but I still need to roll to hit with it. But it comes in handy. That finishes off my HQ section, but I think I forgot to actually mention what are my two litanies on my chaplain on bike, which are the um, recitation of focus. That's just pick a unit in your command phase within six inches. That unit gets plus one to it in the shooting phase. Usually he will do this on one of the dreadnoughts in turn one, two. Later during the game, I switch that out quite often for the regular Canticle of Fate, with every chaplain comes with, which is just your core and character units reroll all hits in combat. And then his last one is maybe one of the most important ones. And this is really where, together with the relic I mentioned before, the Aurelian Shroud, my entire list is built around, um, which is the Litany of Hate. It does give you an additional three inches on your Consolidate move, and if you get to the pylon step, you can do six inches. Furthermore, it also gives you plus two on the charge, which combined with the Black Templar, um, basically regular trait that they have, the Codex trait, is that they can reward charges. It makes uh, charges out of Deep Strike very reliable. You get usually a seven inch charge out of Deep Strike with a free reroll. Um, so quite often your units that will come down, they get to charge. In the troop section, uh, we have three units, just two Crusader squads. These are Black Templar-specific uh, firstborn marines, all chainswords. These are usually there to hold objectives. And what I do very often with them is I put them in strategic reserve by spending one or two CP so that I can walk them on later onto the board. 
And with the plus two to charge from my chaplain, um, they usually can charge onto an objective that was maybe only held by a tank or a non-opsec unit. And even if they don't kill anything, they can usually steal objectives later on during the game, which is very important. And then my third troop choice is an assault intercessor squad. Similar story than the previous one, just with the added benefit that for 2CP they can fight again, which I usually never use for the fight again, but actually to get an additional 3-inch consolidate and 3-inch pylon, which can be a 6 and a 6. So in the assault phase, after charging, this unit can go up to 24 inches, which is pretty crazy. Um, if they stay within range of my buffs and um, they can easily spread out in enemy lines and like steal one or even two objectives. The elite section is where I have everything, basically. Um, I have a big unit of five blade guard veterans. These are one of my close combat squads that I use um, to fight opponents like heavy units. I have my Primaris Apothecary. Um, he is a big staple in any Space Marine list. He comes with the upgrade for Chief Apothecary, the Warlord Trade Selfless Healer, and he also has the Crusader Helm, which is a plus three inch range to his auras, which makes the six up feel no pain a six inch bubble instead of a three. And in my command phase, I can pick a unit within six inches of him. That unit now has the Assault Doctrine active. So similar to a Blood Angel's, um, Apothecary, they're actually not called Apothecaries for Blood Angels. He can put a unit, Assault Doctrine, turn one, and gives up Feel No Pain. And the great thing about this is, together with Fervent Acclamation from Gemaldus, his Feel No Pain can be a 9-inch aura. So he can stay safely in the backfield and give out a 9-inch bubble for Feel No Pain, um, which is pretty good. Then next up, we have two Redemptor Dreadnoughts, full loadouts, Storm Bolters, Icarus Rocket Pod, the Macroplasma Incinerator, and the Onslaught Gatling Cannon. Um, no big secret here. We'll come back to these guys later when we go a little bit more through the list. Uh, the Terminator Assault Squad, two Thunder Hammers and three Lightning Claws. A big unit of 10 Vanguard Vets, all Lightning Claws and Storm Shield. But for the Sergeant who has a Thunder Hammer and a Storm Shield, quite often the squad is being combat squatted into two separate units. Um, that way they can go off the different targets. And then in my heavy support slot, I have a Whirlwind. I only really take him... <laughs> I would say as an intimidation factor, because for one CP, the whirlwind can use a stratagem that the unit that he shot at, as long as I score a hit, um, that unit cannot set to defend, cannot overwatch, and will all, is not eligible to fight till all other units hit. So what it does quite often is about all against Drukari, for example, it prevents units that want to charge my army to disembark early in the game so they gotta stay within a transport so they cannot be targeted and if i can destroy a transport or they need to disembark i can threaten them with shooting them with my whirlwind so that they will fight last um, it doesn't happen as often on the tabletop and i've played quite often with the idea of replacing him but every time i do i get reminded of the one or two occasions where he saved me a game and he actually stays in my list and then last but not least we have a land speeder storm um this guy is just in here to get an early game engaged in all fronts, usually. Um, and then most of the time he will just die. Um, but that's really it. And that's 2,000 points on the dot. Let's go ahead and uh, hear about uh, all the synergy and what your army does. It sounds like maybe it's a melee and board control list, but tell us in your own words how it plays. Um, correct. It's a very melee-heavy army. Um, and it's a little bit tricky, I would say, to describe how the list works on the tabletop because it depends drastically on my opponent. Um, the army can do a little bit of both. Um, it's a jack of all trades. It's not extremely good at one thing, 
but it can do everything a little bit, which was extremely important when Drukhari came out because you had to interact with them in at least two different phases. You needed to have the strength to kill reliably at least one, if possible, two raiders, um, which led me to take the Redemptor Dreadnoughts. Um, a lot of Black Templarists um, were focused more around more Terminators or more close combat units. But what I realized going into the Dukori matchup is that you had to have at least one or two units that can reliably kill a raider. And when I went through a Space Marine Codex, I was like, all right, early already, I saw the Contemptor Dreadnought with the Twin Link Bulkite, which I really like, but um, I wasn't in love with it because they do not have a melee aspect to it, which a Redemptor does. The Redemptor hits like a train. Um, so I ended up settling on the Redemptor instead of on the Contemptor. I think the list could work with either option, um, I must say, also because the Contemptors are a little bit cheaper. Um, but I really, really liked how the Redemptors work in every matchup. And the reason I really think that Black Templar are unique in one of their, uh, I would say, like relics, which is the Aurelian Shroud, um, it gives you that four removable save. So similar to what John Lennon had been taking with his uh, Death Watch list and also Jack Harpster at All of War, um, they built a very Dreadnought-heavy list focused around a 5-up Invulnerable save that they get for free from the Shield and Violate, or I don't remember exactly how it's called, but the Storm Shield basically that the Captain has. Black Templar do it better for one turn and then don't have it at all, so I guess it's a trade-off, but... My Redemptor Dreadnoughts, usually Redemptor Dreadnoughts will just simply die to Dark Lances in like a blink of an eye. But with that 4-up Immunable save, they do not. Um, it comes sometimes down a little bit to dice, and I will say I definitely won at least one game because the dice were with me in that game. Um, but usually what I tend to do with my list is, based on the matchup, I can deploy a very defensive, where I try to hide most of my army. Black Templar are surprisingly fast based on a couple of stratagems that they have, which we'll get to later. But almost all of the units have the option to move an additional three or six inches in your opponent's turn, move in your movement phase. They have a strat to advance and charge. So even the slowest unit in my list, which is the Terminators that only move five inches, I can technically move them six inches in my opponent's turn, five inches in my movement phase, advance them with a free reroll that Black Templar gets. So usually it turns out to be another four inches. So now we're already talking six plus four plus five for 15 inches for Terminators. And then they charge at plus two and reroll to charge. So the threat range of my Terminators, even from out of line of sight, is a reliable 22 inches. And then from there, we can go into trying to be a little bit lucky uh, they can be 23, 24, or 25 inches also. And that just gives the list uh, the chance to really hide behind terrain when I need to, but also be really aggressive. So usually the way it works is I hide my list pretty well during turn one. I only throw out a couple small units just to get engaged, start planting banners when I took that, hold objectives in my backfield. And then once the opponent starts to move upfield, I can put out all my units protect my entire army with a 4 removable save. Those units that already have it natively, like the Vanguard Vets or the Blade Guard or the Terminators, they don't need to be close to my Captain, so usually they're on one side of the board together with the Apothecary. And then on the other side of the board, I usually have my two Dreadnoughts with my Captain and my Chaplain 
on bike. Um, that gives them plus one to hit. And this way, my dreadnoughts for one turn, but that's usually a turn that matters, are very durable, extremely durable. They can also get the five of feeling of pain if needed from Grimaldus. And usually what that did in most of my games is I can hide, bait my opponent into coming onto the table, and then have one turn where my dreadnoughts can shoot a lot, usually killing one or two raiders if they can get within 24 inches so that they can shoot all their guns. And then I have enough punch with the rest of my list to go in and charge. And then from there is when I start taking over the, the pace of the game. So usually I start very slow, very hiding, very cagey. And then once I think the, the battlefield is right, I throw my army into the middle of the field. I give them that four being vulnerable save. And I can basically start fighting from there. And sometimes what I need to do is if I have to deploy aggressively, which is also, I think, one of the big mistakes that I did in my game against Nick, um, who actually pointed it out after the game, is I had deployed too passively in our game. I could have deployed a little bit more aggressive. And even if I would have gone second, I could have just used that Fort Memorial save in the first turn to reduce the damage from Dark Lenses against my Dreadnoughts, but then be in a better position to strike against. Uh, my opponent, which um, sometimes that can be, you get too, I would say, too much into yourself. You feel like I'm always deploying defensively, I'm always deploying defensively. In some games, some map layouts, you gotta deploy aggressive, which Black Templar allow you to do because of that great four and one, I will say, from the Aurelian Shroud. Um, but yeah, that's that's basically it. So that's how my list comes together. Is my chaplain runs with my infantry. Um, Grimaldus I meant, so Chaplain Grimaldus runs with my infantry, buffing them up together with the apothecary, and on the other side of the board I usually tend to have my captain and my primary chaplain on bike, buffing up my dreadnoughts, going midfield, and then turn two or turn three is when I bring in my reserves, which usually what I did is I kept my terminators, at least one of my combat squatted Vanguard veterans in Deep Strike. And then, as I mentioned before, I really like to spend at least one CP pregame for strategic reserve, and I can put a couple of my smaller units in outflank. And this allows me to bring in key units at a time when I really need them. I also force my opponent to spread out and screen his backfield, which quite often they will want to do just so I can't deep strike in their backfield, but it also means that they now committed resources that they do not have in the front line. And sometimes that in itself is a win, which is worth one CP for your um, basically outflanking for your strategic reserve. And that's really it. That's the idea of my list. I have two blocks, infantry plus two characters, my dreadnoughts plus two characters. Both my characters on bike are fast enough that once my dreadnoughts die or they are not as important anymore. They can turbo boost over to meet all my infantry and then start giving all their buffs over there. And the rest of my list is extremely fast, very durable, being space marines. And if they hit at the right time, at the right place, they can take out almost any unit when I need to. It sounds like you've brought like a very tricksy, meticulous toolbox army that just kind of bides its time and dictates the pace of the game because it's got all these control stratagems like Devout Push. And uh, from there, just dictates the tempo and strikes when they want to and that kind of thing. Is that pretty much the idea? Correct, yes. So you you mentioned one of the key stratagems in my list, Devout Push. Um, it's a stratagem that can be used at the beginning of the combat phase. So it's it, it's a little bit tricky because usually... 
you start your charge phase, you declare your charges, then you do your heroic intervention, and then right after heroic interventions have finished, a Black Templar infantry or biker unit for one CP can immediately do a consolidate move. And that consolidate move is usually three inches. But if they're within range of my um, chaplain on bike, within six inches or nine inches, if I had got my fervent acclamation of Grimaldus, and here's where you start to see that all my buffs start layer one on top of another, they can do a six-inch consolidate, which is huge. Because what it allows me to do is I can even keep some of my unit behind obscuring terrain maybe, but within three or four inches of the center of the board or within an objective, I don't need to expose them so my opponent can kill them in their shooting phase. And then in my opponent's combat phase, they can consolidate out of terrain onto the objective. It, it can sometimes be tricky because it still follows the rules of consolidate, which is you need to end your move closer to the previous closest enemy model. But due to the nature of turn one and two, it's very rare that a unit will be in my backfield so that I cannot move them in the direction I want. Um, that's a way, by the way, to counter develop push, um, is if you take a small sacrificial unit against Black Templar and you put them closer to the key Black Templar units that you think they might develop push, um, they need to then go towards that unit um, and can't go maybe in the direction that the Black Templar player wanted. But it's really hard to pull it off turn one and two. Um, but yeah, Devout Push is an amazing stratagem that lets you fall back out of combat also. And I cannot charge, but I can Devout Push back into combat. I do not get all the benefits of charging, but you're out in and out, basically. Same, you can get onto objectives, and you make it extremely hard, almost impossible for any other army to take away your objectives. Because once your strong units, like your Blade Guard veterans, your Vanguard veterans or your Terminators have basically managed to secure an objective, your opponent cannot just simply put more units on that objective because you can just develop push into them and kill them. And that way still score the objective in your turn. And also where this came in super handy, um, which is sometimes like a little trick I like to do, is I put a unit that might not be OPSEC onto an objective, baiting my enemy maybe into trying to take that objective away from me with a strong unit that I might not be able to kill, but still outnumbers my models. But then what I can do is I can always develop push my chaplain on bike six inches closer maybe to that unit to now use my rights of war aura to make that unit OPSEC. So it doesn't come in handy as often, but it is a trick. And it's something your opponent always needs to look out for is which units can develop push. Can my chaplain on bike develop push to make another unit OPSEC? Can I devote push some of my characters to give their auras to another unit that maybe before it wasn't? So it's a stratagem that is extremely handy in almost any situation. I usually end up using this three, four, five times during the game. And it's definitely one of the key three corners that my list is built around. The first one is the Aurelian Shroud, which is the four removable save. The second one is, I would say in general speaking, my two chaplains. Um, with all their different buffs. And then the third one is definitely the Vault Push, um, which allows your Black Templar units to be extremely fast and pull off a lot of little tricks. I love that you just said that your list is built around three corners. We're going we're gonna to use that as the title of this episode. I'm sure that's really cool. Um, yeah, it sounds it's, it's, like 
Yeah. It's absolutely true. Yeah. Those are like the three key elements that if I would narrow down how did I win most of my games, it's a combination of those three things. Mm-hmm. So when you when you put it like that, like and typically when people talk about their armies, they don't talk about my army is based off of a relic and a stratagem. They talk about my army is built around these units or this strategy or this secondary, or this concept. So you've built your army off of what is essentially a one command point stratagem and and a four up involve for one turn on a six inch aura, maybe relic. What does it do when you're not? What else does it do? Like, how is that enough of a strategy? Or what, I guess, how do you score points? How do you win, actually win your games with this army? So what it lets me do is I can dictate the pace of the game. Um, what I start realizing about with a lot of, of our armies, like Dark Angels, Drukhari, um, especially, um, is that they can score a lot of secondaries very easily and will usually outwin the secondary war. So when I basically started putting my list together, I was like, okay, how can I win a game in which I know coming up against Drukhari, which now in the future we don't need to talk about as much maybe anymore, and it might be more AdMac, is how can I win a game? And a lot of Drukhari lists came into the game with almost a guaranteed 30 to 40 points on the secondaries and a very easy 45, Um, which as a Space Marine player, even so Space Marines are strong, you can do. Um, basically, Drukhari have, while we stand, we fight. There were a lot of Drukhari lists out there that were built around having three units that they know they will probably not lose. So that was 15 points right there. They will come in with her to Prey, which is a pretty strong secondary in which they can score 12 to 15 points pretty easily. Um, and if you try to deny that, you will most likely lose because you need to throw away your army all the time and try to be in three quadrants of the game, which is almost impossible against Drukhari. Um, so that was already 30 points right there. And then the third secondary that will take will quite reliably still give them a good amount of points. So that's why I had to start, right? This is where I was like starting. I was like, okay, how can I counter this? How can I be good enough that I can beat Drukhari at their own game? And this is really where my three corners actually help my list build because I thought, hmm, my three most expensive units are my Vanguard Vets, my two Redemptor Dreadnoughts, and they actually share, and that was specifically made for it, the same cost than my Terminator Assault Squad. So what I could do in some games, I was like, okay, I can also take while we stand, we fight, which is usually not a secondary you necessarily want to take because it also competes with those of the moment. But what it does, if, if now the... Dukari player holds back his three units, which usually end up being Drazar and two other good units. He needs to come to you to kill your Dreadnoughts, which is what you want, or at least my list wants them to do. So I was like, okay, my list is built on the Aurelian Shroud. With the Aurelian Shroud, I can protect my Dreadnoughts. I can just keep them out of line of sight. And when I need to use them for that turn, I can protect them, and then they can just get out of line of sight again. And that way I can get 15 points right there. And now I only have to think about two secondaries, which usually what I would do is engage on all fronts, um, which means that I'm already directly contesting her to prey. Now I force the Drukhari player to really kill my units that want to be in three or maybe all four quadrants. And now the game becomes more dynamic. Now I'm not automatically losing on secondaries. I'm really forcing the game. It's like, all right, now if I score well on engage, the Drukhari player might not score well on um, her to prey. 
And then my third secondary is very tricky. Um, it's very, very dependent on mission. But same, it was for a lot of my opponents. It's pretty easy to choose maybe one or two secondaries against my list, but the third one was always hard. And that's why I won actually most of my games. Because a lot of the Drukari players or other players will take Assassinate. I have four characters. But then, saying what I did before with my Dreadnoughts, I can play super cagey. I just can stay back. I can devote push on objectives when I need to. I score my 10, 10, 10 points on primary for like a solid 40. And I would score pretty well on secondaries too. Um, Oath of the Moment is a Space Marine specific one that will score you a good solid 10 points. Usually if your opponent has a couple of vehicles or monsters that you can pick off here and there. And if you have a couple small units, I would all of you go second that you can put in the center of the board. Um, Oath of the Moment is a great secondary for Space Marines. And then as a third one, I can take Scramblers. Um, based on the deployment that um, worked pretty well, or I can take banners. So there's different secondaries that I can then take to to make up for my third one. Um, and that was my list design, actually. I, I had started with secondaries, but when I realized I cannot win on secondaries, I must find a way how I can win somewhere else, I decided that my secondaries are going to be my second choice. I will build my list around being able to counter the most important opponent and lists, and then took a step back, be like, okay, now that I have a list that I can fight with, what are my secondaries of choice? So it sounds like you're kind of just playing your army to each specific game. I'm going to figure out my secondaries. I have this wide variety of decent secondaries. I'll just pick the three that makes the most sense in the specific match. And you tailor your strategy to every opponent. Use Jukari as a as an example, because I'm sure you were very prepared for them at the ACO, but that's pretty much the philosophy for every game, right? Correct. Absolutely. As I, I had four or five secondaries that I was very or felt very good about going into each matchup. I was like, okay, no matter what mission, no matter what matchup, I have a good range of secondaries I can take, and I can always try to pre-game think which secondaries will my opponent take, and then counter or try to already counter. It's like a little mind game, right? Like when you're sitting there choosing your secondaries, I usually start by thinking actually not about what I want to take, but what is my opponent taking? Like I try to think if I would be him, what would I take against myself? And then That's from so there I go like, okay, if I think these make sense, I try to take secondaries to counter that. I, I literally coach people to just not care what your opponent is doing and do what you're going to do because you have no control over that. And you're like, no, figure it, it was stress over it, figure it out. How does that play for you? How do you... How do you concern yourself with what your opponent's going to take to the point of making an actionable plan against it, if you're just guessing? Um, I feel like, um, and you might know much more about this than I, but I've learned over the years is that a lot of people come with a plan. And that plan, more often than not, is built a little bit around meta building, like meta listing also, online finding your secondary. So a lot of people, about all till you get really to the tippity-top tables and players, they will come in with a set set of secondaries. So very often when I go to a tournament, I know that most Drukari players will take the D's and D's secondaries. Most Dark Angel player will take these secondaries. Most other Blood Angel players will take these secondaries. So from experience in playing against, I will say, the stronger lists, you already have a, a good set of secondaries. And then even if you haven't prepared every list, which I honestly didn't do, um, you still get a good feeling. I feel like quite often when I get to the table and I look at my opponent, I feel like that's one of my biggest strengths. 
uh, I look at their army and I think, all right, I'm pretty confident that if he takes this and this and this secondary, actually, I do not care. So it's fine for me taking those. That, well, I'm fine if he takes those. But if he takes A, B, and C, I want to be able to counter them. So now I think, all right, if I take these secondaries, would my secondaries be able to counter A, B, and C? Yes, great. But would they put me at a disadvantage if he takes any other secondaries? And if the answer to that is no, those are the secondaries of my choice. So I try to go by what is my opponent going to take, which ones I do not care for if he takes. If he takes those, great. I will choose my secondaries just around, I would say, the, the semantic of do I'm, am I now at a disadvantage if he chooses those? Yes, no. Maybe I'm taking a small risk here. But if he takes the key important ones, which one of the most important ones, for example, is scramblers. A lot of fast armies tend to go with scramblers. And I think it's a big trap because if you take scramblers, you must play aggressive. You cannot allow yourself to stay back too long because if you do not get an infantry unit within range of your opponent's deployment zone so that they can walk in and scramble, um, you lose 10 points. And actually, two of my four Drukhari matchups um, up, leading up to the Swiss round, so in my first six games, I played Drukhari four times. Um, twice out of those four times, they took scramblers, and I was able to deny them scramblers. I basically played very cagey. I zoned them out of my deployment, and I very much focused on any raider with an infantry unit that would come close enough to my deployment so that they could disembark and simply walk into my deployment. And I was able to keep them to a zero score here. And because I knew that they would likely take scramblers in those matchups, I prepared my secondaries so that I wouldn't fall into the same trap. And both those games I won by a couple points only. And if they would have scored the 10 points for scramblers, I would have lost. But going into the matchup thinking that they will take it and I was rewarded by them actually taking it, my game plan then played out well. In one of those two games, I also got a little bit lucky on the dice and um, I was able to pull it off. Do you find this strategy uh, to be a little risky? Because if you're just wrong on what you thought your opponent's going to take and how you hedged your bets on the secondary choices, you could find yourself in a, in a hole? Or is, is a secondary choices you take not capable of setting you up like that? So that's why I said, or I tried to explain, is the secondaries I take in response to what I think my opponent will take. I also think about what if they do not take what I'm thinking they take? Am I now at a disadvantage? So... Maybe that answers your question, right? Like I try to still choose right. secondaries that even if you take something completely different from what I thought, I'm still in a good game. And based yeah. on the matchup, right, like before the game really starts, I'm like, all right, what are my odds here? What are my chances? And um, going into a matchup like Dukari, I'm so sorry that I'm coming back to this, but these were the big, I will say, like army that you had to beat at ACO. Um, I was like, I'm, I'm on the back foot. I must come up with a better game plan than just be like, I'm just going to be lucky or I will just roll better than you because otherwise you will lose. So yes, sometimes I certainly took a little risk here or there, but I felt up about all in matchups where you don't feel very confident in your list and in the mission, you need to start taking some gambits. And I prefer to take gambits that at least I can even out later during the game, which is your secondary selection. I mean, nothing has happened yet, right? Like, in the game, we take so many gambits. I mean, once you start playing, things go wrong, you throw away units, you do mistakes. Um, you can't really counter those anymore. Sometimes it's too late. But with your secondary selection, I feel it's so early in the game that I still have a chance of coming back and be like, all right, 
my gambit here didn't pay off, but now I just need to be a little bit better on the board. Yeah, that's a very interesting approach. Honestly, I, I don't play 40k like that, but that's not a good or a bad thing. That's just a really cool way that we can both view it so differently. Yeah, um, yeah. no, for sure. There's a hundredth way to play 40k. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Now, Tim Tim mentioned earlier that he you had a question about the stratagems, Tim, and the CP expenditures. Sasha's talking about devout pushing four or five times a game. Do you use other strats? Do you do you other other strats? Yeah. Um, one of the key stratagems in my list is, uh, whew, what's the name of it? It's a dreadnought specific one. Basically, what it does is you can spend one CP in your command fate to give um, any dreadnought um, a lieutenant or a captain aura. So basically, I usually use it for a lieutenant aura, turning one of my two dreadnoughts into a lieutenant. So I get reroll ones to wound till my next command phase. Uh, that's a stratagem that I use same two, three times during a game. It buffs a lot the strength of your dreadnoughts. And also in melee, it really helps. And because of coming back to Grimaldus, his fervent acclamation, the lieutenant aura can be a nine-inch aura. Given the base of the dreadnought being almost four inches, that means I have a basically 22-inch circle on the table in which everything rerolls once to wound. Um, super handy. Um, the other stratagem that I use uh, is... Uh, uh, Black Templar specific stratagem and what it does is it prevents an enemy infantry unit from falling back. So one of my Black Templar infantry units, on if I roll a 2 or better for 2 CP prevent an enemy infantry unit from falling back. It's a very good stratagem um, that can come in very handy. You can try to wrap an enemy unit or consolidate into an enemy unit. Quite often what I do is and I think even it happened in our match, Nick, is that I was able to kill one unit with a Vanguard Vet and a Dreadnought, and then I consolidated both into another infantry unit, and now I was able to make that unit not fall back, keeping my Dreadnought safe and also my unit, at least from the shooting phase. They still get You actually got me to spend two CP on Desperate Breakout and then told me I couldn't fall back afterwards, and that just sucked. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, it never actually came up in that order. I was never able to try point an infantry model also. So that's why I even told you, I was like, I don't even know if you get your CP back. I think you might even get your CP back. Um, <laughs> but I was like, uh, I don't know. I didn't even think of the interactions. Like, wow, this is this is cool, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So no, it's, it's a great stratagem. And I think also in a lot of future matchups, so coming now with maybe Admax, Sisters of Battle, a lot of the new armies, I feel like that will start to be um, stronger, that will start to show more at the matter. It will still be an extremely important stratagem to keep your Black Templar units safe and um, keep them fighting longer, which that's what they want to do. They want to be fighting. And then for the rest of the stratagems, it's a good mix um, that you sometimes use. Um, Gene Broad Might is a great stratagem. Um, Black Templar have it inherently that six is to wound, uh, six is to hit or the wound, but it does not work against vehicles. Um, so it's a stratagem that I use quite often on my Blade Guard bats. Uh, if they charge a vehicle, um, so that their sixes to hit all the wound. Uh, it's a great strat that I will point out there. And then for the rest of the stratagems, I don't think there's any other really important ones. There's a lot of really good ones, but none that I use as much as the Vault Push and the Lieutenant Aura for my Dreadnought and prevent enemy units from falling back. Ah, oh, right. ooh, I, sorry, I forgot one, which is Assault and Charge. So a Black Templar have a stratagem that lets you advance uh, for bike or an infantry unit, and that unit 
uh, can still charge. And the great thing is because of the wording on the stratagem, you can first roll your advance roll, see what you got, re-roll it if you want to with the Black Templar trait, and then if you want, you can spend a strat to make that unit be eligible to still shoot pistols and charge that charge phase. Amazing stratagem. Yeah, that is yeah. uh, that is huge, especially with the devout push. Um, I don't think we actually touched on this, but why don't you walk us through just kind of, I think it's hard for people, especially people who haven't played Black Templars or played against Black Templars, to really wrap their mind around the threat range of uh, like a Vanguard vet or even a Terminator or Blade Guard veteran uh, when you combine the litanies and devout push um, and then the advance and charge plus the rerolls and then the plus two to the charges from the uh, the chaplain. Um, why don't you go ahead just real quick, just give us a rundown of that. I think that's a really good capstone of how this comes together. Yeah, sure. Um, so imagine in your regular game of Warmer 40k, you start the game being 24 inches away from one another, right? And turn one can be a bit more cagey. Let's say I'm going second as the Black Templar payer, and my opponent's going first. And in his first turn, because I deployed very passive, he will not do a whole lot. He will keep his army reserved in his deployment zone, will go into a couple of objectives. He goes to his shooting phase, he shoots a couple shots, um, he starts his charge phase, and I'm like, all right, charge phase. You have no charges, I will devote push. Now, because it's the first turn, my litanies have not kicked in yet. Um, so in the first turn, I only get a three inch, but starting with second and consecutive turns, I get a six inch move on one of my infantry or biker units to get closer to the opponent. So now, for example, my Vanguard vets get to move three inches or six inches. Um, now my opponent's turn is over and it's my turn. Now my Vanguard vets move 12 inches base. So we'll just go with the three inch and take the six inch as the bonus. Um, three inches in the opponent's combat phase, 12 inches in my movement phase means they're already 15 inches closer to you. Now Black Templar can re-roll the advance roll. So I will roll the die. Usually if I roll a three... If I really need to, I will re-roll it, but anything worse than a 3, I always re-roll. If it's better than a 3, I do not re-roll. So we'll just average it out at a 4. Now I'm already at 17 inches. I get plus 2 on my charge, so that means I'm already at 19 inches, technically, after my charge move. So on average, you will roll a 7 on 2d6, so that means I have 24 inches. So with an extremely good chance, and not really a whole lot of luck here, my Vanguard veterans now have covered 24 inches that can easily become 27 inches once I get my litanies off. And if I just get a little bit lucky on my advance roll, on my charge roll, it's a 28 to 30 inch range on my Vanguard veterans. So between my opponent's combat phase, my movement phase, and then my charge phase, my Vanguard veterans can reliably cross 24 to 30 inches. And this is the same for all my other units. My Assault Terminators just basically reduce this by 7 inches, but they still get a solid 17 to 24 inches. My Vanguard vets are 18 to 25 inches. So all my even seemingly slow infantry unit in a key turn can cross 24 inches in a blink of an eye. That's yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's honestly crazy. really, really strong. Everyone's everyone's worried about, uh, about Repentia and White Scars over here. Meanwhile, Black Templars are doing uh, somersaults coming towards your deployment zone. Uh, <laughs> did we talk about the, uh, the no-fallback strategy at all? Yeah, we, we mentioned it. Sasha, I have one more problem question while, to you while we're on the th subject of threat range. Do you normally missile your army out like that, just flying 24 or 30 inches full speed ahead charging stuff? Or is it more just like you're projecting that threat and, and going for more low-hanging fruit? 
It's a little bit of both. It's a threat that my opponent always needs to think about. Um, and I don't use it as often based on the matchup, um, but I sometimes do. And in a lot of the games about all of I feel that my opponent doesn't have a very solid close combat punch to um, hit me back. My Vanguard veterans can stay as a squad of 10. And if they do, I can put the Five of Funeral Pain on them. So now I have 10 men with Storm Shield. So they're two up armor, four being one, I would say Five of Funeral Pain. They can get the full rerolls from the Chapter Master. So now they have full rerolls to hit. They reroll to wound natively and they charge 30 inches. So now I can literally just move them across the board, charge a key opponent unit, kill it in my turn, wrap something else. And even if my opponent uses Desperate Breakout, I can prevent him from falling back. And now we have the synergy with my Whirlwind is if the opponent's strong close combat units are not in a transport, my Whirlwind will shoot them, make them fight last. And now in my opponent's turn, he cannot fall back. He cannot shoot my Vanguard veterans. And his strong close combat unit, when they charge my Vanguard veteran, will strike last. So my Vanguard veterans get to fight first. So that's a huge threat that you always need to have in the back of your mind that you will just have 10 Vanguard veterans with five of funeral pain, with storm shields in your deployment zone, preventing you from falling back. And I'm able to make one of your units and no matter where you put them, because I can shoot you out of line of sight, unless it's in a transport or off the table, fight last. So even your close combat threats, which this comes up quite often against blood angels, is I can throw in, kill one of his close combat threats, like one of his strong close combat units, in my turn, and I make one of his other units fight last. So to put a sample here, if I play against a Blood Angels player who has a big unit also of Vanguard veterans and a unit of Sanguinary, um, not Sanguinary Priest, uh, how are they called? The, the Golden Boys, the Shiny Boys. Uh, the Sanguinary Guard. Yeah, the Sanguinary Guard, thank you. I can go charge one of those two units and make the other unit fight last. And now the Blood Angel player, if he wants to counter charge me, first gets hit by all my infantry models, and that can deter a lot of charges. So yes, I sometimes missile my squads up my opponent um, with all these different buffs and threats, um, but it doesn't happen as often as you might think. I usually play very cagey um, so that I can always keep a foot on the pedal. I prevent my opponent from taking control of the board and quite often when they do i can capitalize on mistakes and then really run away with the game from there mm -hmm. yeah i think that's a that's a great synopsis of your army it's really just there's so many moving pieces to it and it's so hard to pin down because you think you have one area covered and the, the other side of the table will just move at you in the wrong phase and all of a sudden it's jumping and charging and capitalizing on mistakes to steal your primary points doing what space Marines do do you find you're normally like kind of tabled by the end of the game, but you're just ahead on the scoreboard? Or are you dominating your opponent? Or how do your games typically go like that? Um, phew, that's a tough question. Uh, against Drukhari, I usually end up being tabled or have very little left. Um, but I did win the game because of mission points. Um, so I missile my army against Drukhari very often. And this is maybe a very different aspect of the game that does not get talked about enough um, to take objectives. So very often in matchups, I actually will throw my units at my opponent, not to try to kill him, but to just steal the objective from him. And what happens quite often in Drukhari matchup is that they like to put just a raider on an objective to keep 
the very fragile units inside safe. So now what you can do is you can just throw, all you need is two models on that objective. Do not kill the raider, because if you do, he will just disembark and put all his infantry onto the objective. Um, but you can just get towards the raider, have one guy swinging at it, you will never kill it. Now be on the objective, you took away primary points against the Dukari player, um, but you will lose your unit, that's pretty for sure. Um, but yeah, quite often, unless I would say I'm dominating the game, um, which any other army than Drukhari I can. So Drukhari are the only army where I know I will not dominate the game. I need to win on objectives against any other army till now. I haven't played the new Admech yet. Um, I was always able that I can dictate the board so much that most of the time my army is actually pretty intact still at the end of the game. Makes total sense to me. I, I mean, I think that's a very good aspect to just marine play is being able to completely accept when your your army is getting out points efficient and over here. So you're going to have to throw it away for points and knowing when you are the muscle guy and you're going to go blow them up. So well done, Sasha. You walking through four Jukari players in land of the unbroken liquefiers is a uh, is pretty impressive with Black Templars. So well done, going six and zero on the first day, making top eight. We'd love to see it. Fortunately, had to uh, meet me, but here we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, that's uh, on the bright side. It got you on a podcast, so there you go. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh, Tim, was there anything else you wanted to ask Sasha while we have him? No, I think we uh, covered it in detail. I'd say uh, at this point, we get to the uh, juicy matchup section in part two uh, for our subscribers and new to be subscribers. Awesome. All right, everyone, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you over in part two where we go through all the in depth tactics, the nitty-gritties of how Sasha places Black Templars into specific armies and matchups. We'll see you later. Thank you, everyone. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under, where we break down armies and new rules. Theartofwar40k.com This episode was brought to you by the Competitive 40k Network. 